Thanks, Andrew. What up, y'all? Everybody good? Man, we've had a crazy weekend. Actually, we've had a crazy week here at the Vineyard. Mm, it's been great. Um, got another crazy week coming up. Before we get to the message, um, I don't know, uh, were you guys aware that we did this... Um, Outreach yesterday, we, we went to Napa, and several of our guys changed oil for single moms yesterday for free. It, it, it act, I, I didn't, honestly, when, when we got this idea, I didn't know how this was going to turn out. I thought, well, this is either going to be cool or it's going to be awful. I don't, I don't know how it's going to be. But um, Richard and Jonathan and Bobby and, and Brent and Hannah and Aaron Fogler, and I'm probably forgetting a few people, but uh, they really worked their tails off yesterday, and for four hours solid, we just had... One car after another, after another, come in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, it was really funny. Before before we even did it, on Friday, I received two Facebook messages from women that I didn't know who apparently live in town. And uh, they were asking me, now, now is, this, is this real? I was like, yeah, it's real. And then, then, you know, she sends me back another Facebook message real quick. She says, is this, I mean, is it really free? And I'm like, yeah, it's really free. Like, we don't want any donations. We don't want anything. We just want you to come and we want to change your oil and they're going to take care of you. And she was like, I can't believe it, you know? So it was really amazing and um, had a, just a really amazing way to touch out and grab hold of our community in, in a way that we have up to this point, been unable to do so. We were able to reach our fingers into some communities in our community that we have no traction with. Uh, places that Jesus really cares about, you know? So we did that yesterday. Then we also had the princess party here yesterday. Were y'all here for that? Well, I walked through it once. <laughs> I'm proud to say I'm still a man after that. I was, there was like 75 women in there getting their hair curled and faces painted and fingernails whatever. I don't, I don't even know what happened in there, but it was, it was sweet. The girls were going nuts. It was really, it was really, really cool. And, um, what was interesting to me about the princess party was, is that ended up being an accidental outreach. Uh, I came through and, uh, there was some, just some ladies there who are not a part of this fellowship and had their kids. And, you know, the love of Jesus was, was in the room and in a completely different way. And, so I'm just really excited here at the Vineyard because we're starting to figure out ways to bring the kingdom into some areas that are profoundly different than us. Um, and I think the Lord's helping us. Um, all of that's to say this. If you get some weird idea, you should probably go with it. Yeah, really, really weird idea. All right, hey, why don't you open up your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12. We're going to take a break from our Colossians series for the week. It's Palm Sunday, so it's a good reason to do so. I wanted to look at um, John's telling of Jesus' triumphal entry this morning, because in John's version, you really, you really get a sense for just how weird everything is that's about to happen. So we're going to read actually several verses. We'll start in verse 12. We're going to read through maybe 26 or so. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast 
heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world's going after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Why don't we pray for just a second? Holy Spirit, we just love you in this room. Holy Spirit, would you come and give everyone in the room a new measure of truth today? God, would you continue to deliver us from Bible knowledge? And God, would you baptize us into the revelation of your heart? Amen. Amen. Yeah, so what we have here is we have a really strange collision in the triumphal entry. You really can't just talk about the triumphal entry because when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on this little donkey, when everyone is singing his praise and when everyone is clapping their hands and they're laying down their coats and they're putting palm branches down and they're saying, that's our guy, even from that moment, the shadow of the cross is already beginning to fall on Jesus. And there's this really amazing collision that's beginning to take place. Uh, to speak about it in meteorological terms would be to say there's a high-pressure system and it's hitting a low-pressure system. And really what we've got is we've got a tornado on our hands, right? Um, we're, we're actually coming into tornado season here in Kentucky. High-pressure systems are beginning to hit low-pressure systems and all kinds of things will happen. Probably in the next couple months we'll have all kinds of crazy storms. And this is the sort of thing that's happening in Jesus' own life. People are saying, Jesus, you're surely the Messiah. Other people are saying... No, you're not. And then Jesus himself is saying really, really strange things like, I'm going to be lifted up or I'm going to be planted in the ground, none of which really sounds like a Messiah. And so all of this leaves us with this sort of um, sense of what the heck is going on here and what's Jesus trying to do? Well, the first thing I'd like to say about this this whole passage and this whole time in Jesus' life is that 
the work of God is oftentimes happening on multi-dimensions. Now, depending on what tradition you grew up in, you're most likely the kind of believer who has grown accustomed to seeing the work of God in only one dimension. Uh, Truth is, there's a, a big part of the church that barely sees the work of God in any dimension. But there are multiple dimensions to the work of God, and there's at least two major ones. And there is this one dimension that some of the church can see. Other parts of the church can't see really even this one dimension. Then there's this other dimension down here, and almost no one sees it. And that's what we want to get to this morning. So what are the dimensions of the work of God? Well, on one level, there's this aspect of the work of God that's out in the open. It's direct and it's plain. It's the reason that people are coming up to Jesus and they're waving palm branches and they're taking off their jackets and they're calling him the son of David and they're crying out Hosanna. You know, why are the people doing all of this? Well, the reason they're doing this is because the thing that Jesus had just done in the Gospel of John is he had just called Lazarus out of the tomb. You guys remember that episode? Lazarus dies. Actually, Lazarus is sick. They send word to Jesus. Hey, your good buddy Lazarus is sick. You should come and heal him. Jesus just sort of like drags his feet for a few days, waits till Lazarus is dead. Then he finally shows up, makes sure that everyone's around. Then Jesus says, hey, Lazarus, why don't you come out of that tomb? And Lazarus comes out with, you know, his grave clothes on. Everyone is completely freaked out. I mean, you can imagine, right? Completely freaked out. Completely. Word gets around everywhere. Uh, Even Jews who up to this point didn't believe in the ministry of Jesus. After they see Lazarus come back, they're like, yeah, you know what? I believe that was it. I'm beginning to believe in this guy. And what did they believe? Well, they were beginning to believe not just in Jesus as a person, but they were beginning to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, right? They were beginning to believe that all the promises that God had made to Abraham, all the promises that God had made to Jacob and, and, to, and to Joseph and to, and to Isaac, all of, these, all of these patriarchal promises, all the promises that God had, had prophesied through Isaiah, they were beginning to believe that, man, maybe this is the guy. And, of course, he is the guy, right? They're beginning to believe it. And so he's coming in to Jerusalem, and they begin to, they begin to shout messianic praise toward him. So when they say, Hosanna, this is straight out of Psalm 118. And everybody knows at this time, this is like, this is like Messiah stuff. And, and when Jesus comes in riding on that little donkey, that's right out of the book of Zechariah. And everyone knows, anybody who's read their Bibles at that time, everybody knows that like, Messiah is going to come in. He's going to come in. He's going to be riding a donkey. And, and most people don't realize the significance of the donkey because in their heart what they wanted is they wanted to be free from Rome. And they were hoping that Jesus was not just going to raise Lazarus out of the dead, but they, they were hoping that Jesus was going to pick up a sword and, and stick it right through Rome. And they were beginning to miss parts of the kingdom. But the point at this, at this stage is, is this, that people are beginning to say, Jesus, I believe maybe you're the Messiah, and they're believing that he's the Messiah based on one kind of the work of God, that kind of uh, God's work which is out in the open, it's plain, it's direct. Hey, Lazarus, won't you come on out? Dead people getting up. Everybody kind of gets that, right? It's the work of God. We tend to gravitate towards this work. And by the way, it's a good work. It's not a bad work. It's a great work. We tend to gravitate towards that work. I know I do. I've seen some uh, amazing things in God's kingdom. I've I've seen the Holy Spirit do unbelievable things just like that. I've seen deaf ears opened. 
Not metaphorical deaf ears, but I've seen actual deaf ears open. I've seen people who never heard a word begin to hear the human voice. I've seen people who had brain tumors in their head, the size of a walnut, get prayer from believers right here, and then that guy goes back the next Wednesday, and then he brings me an MRI where there's nothing in it. Like, I just, I don't, it, I'm not talking about metaphorical brain tumors, and I'm not talking about metaphorical ears opening up. I'm talking about the actual stuff. I've seen it. It's the work of God. It's the plain. It's the direct. It's the interventions. It's the out in the open. It's the sort of stuff that will cause you to lay your coat down and wave your palm branches. But I'm also here to say that there's another kind of the work of God, and you can actually become blinded by this one and unable to see the other. Okay? So... It's the reason that Jesus has his crowd around him, and it's the reason they're believing that he's possibly the Messiah. And then there's the work of God that happens on another dimension altogether. It's the hidden work, it's the mysterious work, and it's the darker work. And most of the crowd doesn't immediately get it. In fact, if you read John chapter 12, one of the themes that's all the way through John chapter 12 is that nobody understands Jesus. No one understands him. It's interesting that Jesus, in the midst of being celebrated, on the one hand embraces the celebration. He gets on the donkey. He rides into town. But in another way, he begins to introduce mysterious notes. You have to ask yourself the question, what kind of Messiah talks about his death during his coronation? Right? Everybody's like, Jesus, what up? And Jesus is like, thanks for coming. Glad you're here. Love you guys. Uh, By the way, probably going to die. Where's the champagne? Like, somebody hook me up. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered him. He says, it's the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And anytime you're reading glorified in the gospel of John, there's always a, a picture of the cross attached to it. Up to this point, twice in the gospel of John, Jesus has said, it's not my time. Now he's saying it is my time. Uh, in John chapter 2, when they run out of wine at the wedding, Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, you've got to do something about this wine thing. And Jesus is like, dude, this ain't nothing to do with me. It ain't my time, right? And then later, he makes some people mad. And um, he makes some people mad, and they're, they're beginning to maybe plot against him and want to kill him. And he's like, the time had not yet come. And he slips out, and he's able to avoid, he's able to avoid any sort of physical harm. But now he's saying, it is my time. And by the way, it is my time has everything to do with being nailed to the cross. This hidden, darker action of the kingdom. He says in verse 24, he says, a kernel, he says a kernel of wheat has to go into the ground. has to go into the earth. And it has to die. It has to remain alone. It has to be covered. It has to be hidden so that it can bear much fruit. This is the sort of thing that the disciples don't understand. Look at verse 16. This paradox here. People don't understand it. Look at verse 16. It says that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, meaning later on, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had to be done to him. What's the point? Well, the point is, a lot of times, the things that are happening in God's kingdom 
on one hand make a lot of sense to us, but there's this other stuff that's hidden and it's darker and it makes no sense. And even if you're a disciple, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to understand everything God's up to. In fact, one of the things I would like to say is that not understanding, that following Jesus and being led into some intense moments of not understanding is essential discipleship. It's actually essential discipleship. Uh, A lot of times we come to this place in following God where we get confused. Jesus begins to do things. Or maybe oftentimes Jesus begins to not do things. (laughs) This is really where it starts. Jesus begins to not do things. Or Jesus begins to talk about things that seem to make no sense. Uh, Hey guys, I'm going to die. By the way, I'm the guy who just raised Lazarus out of the the tomb. But I'm going to die. And it makes no sense. And one of the things I would like to suggest is that following Jesus around to the point that you become profoundly confused is actually essential discipleship. The disciples don't get this stuff. There's a a part of following Jesus that exists in confusion. Um, In verse 28, uh, God speaks, but the crowd heard thunder. (laughs) This is... Okay, so verse 16, the, crowd, the disciples don't understand. And then Jesus says in verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. He said, What am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour. So Jesus is like troubled, and he doesn't, he's not, he's not even, he's not like loving this. And he says, Well, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and heard it and glor- will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken. There's something about following Jesus around. You follow him long enough, God might speak and you and I might think it's thunder. There's an aspect of following Jesus that will lead you into some places where it doesn't make sense. Again, in verse 34, the crowd doesn't understand him. Jesus said, hey, you know what? I'm going to have to be lifted up. And he says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. And we always quote that verse wrong. Uh, Most of the time in the church, we quote that verse like this. Uh, If we lift Jesus up by worshiping him, then he'll draw all the people to him. No, what he was talking about is if I get lifted up on the cross and I'm going to draw all men to me. And the whole crowd is like, hang on, but you're the Messiah. Like the Messiah is like lives forever, right? They don't understand him. Totally don't get it. So the message is this morning is that this is a time to embrace the fullness of the kingdom And it's the time to embrace the fullness of how the kingdom comes. By the way, Jesus invites his disciples into both dimensions of the kingdom. He invites you and I into open, direct displays of a power encounter in the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 10, he tells his disciples, Freely you've received, now freely give. He says, Heal the sick, preach good news to the poor, cleanse the lepers, drive out devils. This is what he says. That dimension. But then he also invites his disciples into this, into, this, into this darker, more hidden aspect of the kingdom. He says in verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Then he says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant will also be. God is not just inviting us into the one side. He's actually inviting us into this more mysterious side as well. One side makes a lot of sense to us. The other side seems to make no sense to us. 
And this is a time for followers of Jesus to, bre- to embrace direct interventions of the kingdom and to also embrace the nonlinear, mysterious, darker, losing kind of kingdom movement. See, everything in the world is telling you right now, in order to win, you need to win. But oftentimes in the kingdom of heaven, winning comes by losing. All the time. People, people sometimes, what, what's going to have to happen is you may have to go through a profound season of losing for God to be able to, to, be able to establish kingdom winning. We don't, I mean, that's like, it makes no sense. It's a time to embrace the non-linear. It's a time to embrace the mysterious, the darker, the losing kind of kingdom movement. And we ask ourselves, well, how do we do that? Well, one of the first ways we do that, and one of the main things, especially for us in this room, is, is this. You can't give your heart to the crowd. And this is a really big deal for Americans, especially American Christians who are anointed to do open, direct, power manifestations of the kingdom. When you, get, when you really believe that Jesus has invited you in to preach good news to the poor... When you really believe that Jesus has invited you in to cleanse the lepers, drive out devils, and heal the sick, when you really believe that stuff and you begin to do it, and that stuff begins to happen, the main temptation for every single person who is beginning to walk with God in this realm is you become tempted to give your heart to the crowd. Jesus would not do it. Jesus would not do it. He wouldn't give his heart to the crowd. Even though, even though they cried, Hosanna, less than a week, they'll be crying, crucify him. You can't give your heart to the crowd. Jesus had put his life not in the crowd's hands, but in the Father's hands. Security or hope put in the crowd leads to all sorts of disaster. I want you to look at verse 19. When you... When you begin to give yourself to the crowd, it's disaster. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, and they're talking about Jesus, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. What are they getting at here? They're jealous. Right? What? What's happening? Well, Jesus has begun to do things. Uh, God's kingdom is beginning to show up in surprising ways. At the same time, God's kingdom is beginning to come in a few days in a really surprising way that no one is counting on. But one of the things that's happening is because Jesus is doing things like raising dead guys out of the tomb, people who were previously over here start to follow Jesus around. As Pharisees' crowds begin to dwindle and go to Jesus, they become jealous and it motivates in them a desire to kill the very person who's going to save everybody. What a disaster, right? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from being the sort of person who's given their heart to the crowds. The Pharisees had given their hearts to the crowds. But Jesus hadn't. See, the work of the kingdom is often happening in a hidden place, a deeper place. The people cry, Hosanna. And the reason they cry, Hosanna, not only, it isn't just because um, they had begun to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but the people who cried, Hosanna, they thought they had a Rome problem. This is a really big deal for us in America. The people who cried Hosanna to Jesus, they thought they had a Rome problem. But God knows that our problems are more profound than that. 
Essentially what they're saying to Jesus is, hey Jesus, why don't you, why don't you be the Messiah who delivers us from Rome? Why don't you come and kick them out and make us the leaders? But God knows that we have a problem more profound than that. Not only that, one of the things that's really surprising to learn about the kingdom of heaven and the king of heaven is this, that God not only cares about the oppressed, but he cares about the oppressors as well. Isn't that right? I learned that from P. Ray. God not only cares about the oppressed, but he also cares about the oppressors. The truth is, these guys didn't have a Rome problem. And the truth is, America doesn't have doesn't have a Washington problem. We have a problem that's deeper than that. See, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is this. If the tables were turned in an instant, if the tables were turned in an instant, would we be any any better than Rome? See, God's kingdom is an everyone kingdom. And without the deeper, darker work of the kingdom, if the tables were turned, we would be just as oppressive as Rome. That's the truth. And so one of the questions I have for us this morning is this. What if we got set free from the need to be set free? That sounds confusing at first, but if you let it wash over you, you see really what it's getting at. What if we got set free from the need to be set free? Let me put it a different way. What if you and I didn't have to win? The need to win and the need to be set free is the root of the culture war that's going on in America right now. You know, everybody's like little Facebook things about like, these people over here, this movie over there. Don't go see Noah. Christians would never do this. Yeah, where does that come from? Well, it comes from a need to win. And if you need to win, you can never serve the people who are losing. If you're always a loser, how are you going to serve the other people who are losing? And by the way, the winners who are above you are also losing. But if you don't need to win, if you get set free from the need to be set free. And by the way, this isn't to say that oppression isn't real in the world. But what if oppression isn't the final answer for what I do or don't do with my life? What if, I can, what if I could just lose? Yeah, what if I could just let it all go? The reason letting it all go and the reason, the reason that not having to win is such a big deal is this. It's a big deal because the kingdom is growing among the losers. The kingdom grows among the losers. It's growing with the weak. Growing with the weak. 
And not only that, but God is interested in not just those at the bottom, but he's interested in those at the top as well. I've found it's hard to have influence with people I'm fighting with. If I feel like I'm on the bottom, and if I feel like my job is to go show the people at the top the right hand of God's judgment, even if it's to touch these other people who are on the bottom with me, I've found that I usually lose that person and are unable to affect these people. You end up losing both. Kingdom of heaven is growing among the losers and those who can walk with Jesus into the darkness. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus is saying the things I do, things my disciples will do also. It's amazing that Jesus is the most powerful guy. Like, you know, Lepers, no problem. Demonized people, no problem. Dead people, also no problem. And Jesus is the guy who's most willing to be the loser. The guy who is most capable of being the winner, like the winner of all winners, is most willing to be the loser of all losers. When they nail Jesus to a cross, it looks like, this is, this is the amazing thing, when they nail him to the cross, it looks like Jesus is a criminal. That's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus is a criminal. The most innocent guy in the whole world looks like a criminal. This is the amazing thing about the kingdom story. You can find whatever you want to find. Just a criminal or an amazing guy. Either way, but God is doing something there. He's willing to like literally look like a criminal. He's willing to be an absolute loser. And somehow in there, the kingdom of heaven ends up winning. Ends up winning. So the question is, can we follow? Can we follow Jesus? Can we give up? Can we give up our need to be a winner? Can we give up our need to see God only moving in this one dimension? Can we also begin to see that he's moving and that his kingdom is growing in this other dimension over here? This this more hidden, this 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 darker, this 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 losing kind of way. Amen.